Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people, and we expect for you to speak to us through your word. May we be open to hearing and listening. May we be open to listening to the words of your Son and allowing him to reframe the way we see the world so that we can become better followers of him and better members of the kingdom of God and citizens with one another in that kingdom while we wait for your son's return. We ask this all in your son's name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So Betty did a great job of capturing for us some of the different themes that we've kind of floated around. Now, love isn't really the theme this week um, in the passage uh, that we're looking at in chapter 6 of Luke. But it's underneath of it because when we think about, well, what is love and what does it mean for us to love God and to love our neighbors? And we've talked about this before, and it's an ongoing, I think, conversation for all of us to think about what this means. Um, and I'm, I think I'm learning how to better articulate it, and I'm, I'm learning myself uh, what this means and how to live it. Because I think in the end, what all of us care about is living the way we're called to live as followers of Jesus. And I think that's why I want us to to remember that it's about how we live. It's not about what we believe. Now, what we believe is important in the sense that what we believe impacts how we live. But also, how we live impacts how we believe. And in the end, the whole point of this is to push us to living a certain way. And it's living the way of Jesus' kingdom as citizens of that kingdom in a foreign world and that's the image I keep using, and it's odd for us to hear that because we think about how we live in the United States and we think about this being a Christian nation. But I really want us to reconsider what exactly we think it means to be Christians living in a place like the United States where we have the freedom to practice our religion and to gather and to, to publicly express what we believe based on our faith. And we have politicians who are also able to do that. And it makes it really hard to distinguish what's church, what's not, what's Christian, what's not Christian, what's of the world, and what's from God. It makes it really hard for us to distinguish all of that. But in a passage like the one we're looking at this week, Jesus makes very clear what he says are the values of his kingdom. And he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a member of my kingdom, this is what I care about and this is what you should care about too. So if you want to open up to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jesus teaching about the values of his kingdom. So if you open up to Luke chapter 6, verse 17... We will begin. Uh, 
I don't have a bulletin around, so I cannot tell you what the Pew Bible number is, but I assume you can look there for yourself. So let's start in verse 17 of chapter 6. He, who is Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples, a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So lots of people people have been gathering. And those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So what Luke makes here is actually a very just broad summary statement. And what he's doing is he's signaling to us as readers. Now, we don't necessarily write this way in our world. We start a new paragraph or we start a new chapter. But they didn't do that back then. They didn't have paragraphs. Sometimes they wrote all the words together. There wasn't spaces. So this is how a first century writer signals, okay, there's a change in what's happening. I'm giving you a new scene and I'm summarizing what happened before. So these people are gathering to hear Jesus teach. Now what we're going to see is he's teaching about life in his kingdom. And what he's specifically teaching is that God comes close to those who need him most. God comes close to those who need him most. Now this is how Jesus then continues in verse 20. But before we get there, before we look at it, let's talk a little bit about something called a beatitude. Has anyone heard of the beatitudes before? Right? Where are the beatitudes? Does anyone know? Are you saying Matthew? Yeah, so Alan's mouth and Matthew to me. Yes, Matthew chapter 5. They start uh, what's called often by people the Sermon on the Mount, which is what people say Jesus' biggest sermon. And it's like three chapters of Matthew. But what's interesting is that Luke has Beatitudes too. Because we think about the Beatitudes as in those Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. But a Beatitude was simply a type of saying that was about a blessing. Now what's interesting is these Beatitudes in Luke are actually very similar to the ones in Matthew. There's a couple differences. And Luke doesn't have as many. But what Jesus is doing with these passages is he's laying out the boundaries of his kingdom. He's saying this is what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom. And really what he's doing, especially if we were to look at Matthew chapter 5, is Jesus is writing a sort of constitution or bill of rights or, you know, for our country, declaration of independence where our values as a nation are defined in how we govern ourselves and how we state what's important, the laws we write, the types of laws we write, and what we don't include in our governing documents. So this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 20. He says, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So this first beatitude is about the poor. Now you've maybe heard this a different way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew has that in spirit addition. 
but Luke doesn't include in spirit. So is this an important difference? Is this an inconsistency? Um, we think that the word that Jesus, because Jesus didn't speak in Greek, at least most likely not in most cases. He was probably teaching in what's called Aramaic. But Luke is writing in Greek, and Matthew, the Matthew edition we have is in Greek. So we think that it's a good chance that the Aramaic word underneath had this sort of poor and poor in spirit both all tied within it. The poor in spirit, people who are low spiritually, those who are impoverished spiritually, but also those who are physically poor. Now for Luke, it's really important to talk about the actual poor. If you remember a couple weeks ago, in chapter 4, when Jesus said, I have fulfilled these things, what is it that Jesus said he came to do? He said, I have been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. And also to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. For Luke, it's important that we see that Jesus' kingdom is about the physically poor. That Jesus came for those people. And what does this mean? That people came and the kingdom of God is close to the poor. God comes close to those who need him most. So this, I think, pushes us to think, how do we think about the poor? Do we view them as people who need God's kingdom most? Do we think about them or treat them as some of the most valued, now, candidates for entrance in the kingdom of God? When I say candidates, I mean that because they're poor, it doesn't mean they're part of the kingdom. It means that the kingdom has come especially for them, and they're an important part of what God wants to do in the world. He's not saying, because you're poor, you're automatically part of my kingdom. He's saying, I've come for you. You've been abandoned by so many people, but I've come for you. So how is it we think about the poor? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. So Jesus continues in verse 21. He says, Blessed are you who are hunger, who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. So now he moves on to hunger. And it seems like there's a very urgent sense to this. Who hunger now, you will be satisfied. So is this a spiritual or a physical satisfaction? I don't think there's any other way that we can read it but physical You hunger now and you will be satisfied. Your hunger, your need for nourishment for your body will be satisfied. Again, God comes close to those who need him most. Those who go hungry every day are close to the kingdom of God. And if they could only find it, they will be satisfied physically by their hunger. So now, how do we think about hungry people? These first two Beatitudes, I think, are challenging for us as Americans. It's easy for us to think about poverty and hunger in distant places, but it's not so easy for us to think about poverty and hunger here. 
So one question we might need to ask is, what is our church, what is it that our church does about people who are hungry and in poverty, who are poor? One thing that we do is we support Love, Inc. Now, Alan Toy has just done a great job of informing our consistory about what Love, Inc. does. Um, and so I'll try to summarize the best I can. Love, Inc. is kind of like a hub. So churches support Love, Inc. People come to Love, Inc. who need support. And then Love, Inc. has the distribution center to, to put people in the hands of the places they need to go. So Love, Inc. does certain things, but they also have um, information to help people who need services they don't have. Now, that's accurate, right, Alan? Yeah, because Alan had this big old list that he brought us of all the stuff they've compiled. So we support Love, Inc., and our um, consistory just adopted the policy that when people from outside of our congregation come to us for help, the first thing we're going to do is encourage them to connect with Love, Inc., and even if that means that one of us, either me or another elder, have to take those people. Because we support Love, Inc. because we alone cannot meet all the needs of the, the hungry and the poor in the community. But we can serve and we can uh, support this community resource. And that's one thing that we do. So if you want to know more about Love, Inc., I'm sure Alan would be happy to tell you about it. Now, one thing we also do as a community is we do support the local food bank. Now, Cheryl, what's, it has a name, right? Operation Help. Now, Cheryl and Daryl are very instrumental to the running of the food bank. They might not tell you that, but I'm pretty sure from what I know that they help make sure it happens. And this is another community resource that we support, we volunteer for. Um, upstairs, we um, collect clothing and other items that go through Operation Help, but then go right into... Uh, another local place here in Decatur that helps people in need. So we do a lot in our community, and we might not even realize it, to help the poor. And while this is great, now I think there's something more that we need to do. I think we need to be better at placing ourselves in the shoes of people who are poor and hungry. It's so easy, and I've done this too, to just... Talk about how people in those circumstances don't know how to help themselves. They don't know how to keep a job. They don't go get a job even though, you know right now, Walmart's probably hiring and all these other places. And they won't get a job. Or they won't keep a job. Or when they have money, they spend it on things that they don't need. And then they don't pay their rent. They don't pay other bills. Now it's easy for us to stand on the outside and to want to know why they can't get their lives together. But I think it's really important for us to step into these people's shoes. And to understand the best we can their backgrounds, their family history. Maybe they're addicted to a substance or they have a mental illness that we have no idea what it's like to live with those challenges. God comes close to those who need him most. And if we can just be the people, a community that tries to help however we can. And also we can just have a mindset to not always assume that people just would rather be stuck in the system. And maybe it's just they don't know how to get out and it's been generations of their family in this poverty line and they don't know what to do. And all of their options except for maybe one end poorly when most of us have so many options that are good and so many opportunities. God comes close to those who need him most. 
Now, Jesus shifts a little bit in verse 20, or the end of 21 by saying this. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So weeping in the first century often was either associated with mourning or with some sort of repentance. So you've done something wrong and you're repenting and part of your repentance is that you mourn your decision and you show remorse. Now I think in mind more than uh, repentance is mourning. So in the first century... People mourned much different than we do. So you'd lose a loved one and you'd have this set structure you went through. It might be a month where you're wearing certain clothes. You're acting a certain way. You wear, uh, you, you don't necessarily do your normal work. And you just mourn the loss of a loved one. So in the kingdom of God, that mourning will be turned into laughter. God comes close to those who need him most. So, so far, Jesus has showed us the values of his kingdom have to do with people in poverty and states of distress, people who are hungry, who need him most. And the kingdom of God gathers around the people who cannot do for themselves. Now, that's what the kingdom of God does. Now, what is it that governments do? Well, governments often see those kinds of people as liabilities because it takes resources. It doesn't add to the wealth of the country. It doesn't add to the way the country's going. But for the kingdom of God, those are the people who are most valued. Jesus continues now in verse 22, and there is a shift here. He continues in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So now Jesus speaks directly to his followers. He says, all right, you are following me. You should expect for people to hate you and to exclude you and to insult you and to reject you because of me. And he says, when that happens, you are blessed. So Jesus is assuming that rejection comes with his kingdom. That people who follow him will be rejected by the masses. That will be rejected by the world. Again, we easily associate this with the disciples. We say, yeah, we expect them. We know that a lot of disciples had things happen. The apostles, Jesus' 12 disciples who were called the apostles, a lot of them died. We know Paul was killed for what he did. But do we often wonder about being rejected ourselves? And here's maybe something for us to think about. How might things change in our congregation? Or how might we impact our community differently? If we didn't go far enough to be rejected by everyone, but if we just did enough differently that it turned some faces, that turned some heads, that people all of a sudden wanted to know what's so odd What's happening over there that these people are so different? Not so different, but just different enough to notice. We should expect rejection, and I think we're lucky that we live in a place where that doesn't happen. But I still think if we really pushed into these values, that we would see some rejection 
in our community, in our lives at least. Lord, people would at least be wondering what's going on. And Jesus continues in verse 23. He says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So when we're rejected, it should be a leap for joy, because it means that our work has value. And then Jesus makes this association with the prophets. Israel did not have a good track record with their prophets. The prophets who challenged them, who spoke for God, were almost completely rejected. While false prophets who told the people what they wanted to hear were well received. And who was it that rejected the prophets most clearly? It was the people with power. It was the kings and the king's leaders. They didn't want to hear the idea that maybe what they were doing was wrong and that they were going to lose their power. Because they were using it to benefit themselves and not to benefit their people around them. When the day of rejection comes, we can celebrate because our work is for the kingdom. Now that's important, but I think what's more important is that this teaches us about the kingdom of God. It's that God's kingdom's values are not the values of the powerful. Now this is a thing I've talked about before and I mean, keep talking about it because it's such an important theme of the Bible. The powerful of the world, the people who hold political power, who hold the most wealth, who hold the most influence, their values are never, and there might be very small exceptions, but almost never the values of the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom threatens their power. By saying, you have gained that power with wealth and authority. And God says, I'm going to undermine that. And show you that it actually has no value. And they want to hold on to it so tight. But God comes close to those who need him most. Who is it that created the class that's rejected? Who is it that created the class with poverty? Who is it that created the class who's hungry? It's the powerful. The people who have more than they need and they hold on to it. And they don't get it to everyone else. Who is it that God comes close to? Those who need him most. Now Jesus shifts and he wants to talk about those people on top in the world. In verse 24 and 25 he says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. So now there's not blessing statements, there's woe statements, which are just within the prophetic history of Israel, a way of addressing things that people are doing that God does not see as good. And what Jesus is saying is, He's now shifted from the poor to the rich. He's now shifted from the hungry to the well-fed. From those who are mourning and weeping to those who are laughing. And what Jesus simply does is he wonders what these people could possibly need from him and his kingdom. They've got it all. 
What does he have for them? Now, we often think about the kingdom of God as a place that we go and we die. But I think this very clearly shows us that it's about life here, too. And maybe more importantly about life here. Because the kingdom isn't waiting. The kingdom is here now. And we are the members that show the world the values of the kingdom. The well-off in life see nothing of value in the kingdom in most places. And it's because they think, I already have everything I could ever need. What do I need from God? Now we know that all people need more than, from God than just physical needs met. We know that there's something deeper spiritually that we all need to meet also. But I think as a church, we get that. We get that everyone needs spiritual nourishment and and they need God spiritually but how often do we think about how maybe the kingdom of God is more than about spiritual needs but also about physical needs God comes close to those who need him most this is how Jesus concludes in verse 26 woe to you when everyone speaks well of you For that is how their ancestor treated the prophets. Again, those who please the masses with what they say probably are saying what anyone and everyone wants to hear. What the saying, they're tickling your ear, right? Is that what that means, right? You're telling them right what they they want to know. But as members of the kingdom of God, it's not about, it's not our job to tell people what they want to hear. It's our job to live the way we've been called to live as members of the kingdom of God. And God comes close to those who need him most. And yes, most of us, all of us, are probably very well off by the standards of the world. Now, we shouldn't, that doesn't mean we need to be threatened. But we need to put ourselves in perspective. And then think, well, maybe we've been given this to help other people. To meet those needs and to show people what it is the kingdom of God has in mind for them. To show them that yes, you can come and be transformed. And not only will your physical needs be met, but your life will be transformed and healed. And maybe you will be able to learn how to better live your life now. You will be transformed. You won't have to live in poverty your whole life. Or you can make better decisions. But it starts by meeting the physical needs and making the relationship and then letting the power of the Holy Spirit transform lives. God comes close to those who need him most. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we've listened to your son's part of his sermon from Luke And we know that we all need you spiritually. But we know that there is a world of people out there who are hungry, poor, in deep sorrow. And they can think about nothing more than what comes tomorrow and where their food's going to come from and how they're going to meet the needs of their family. May you help us to better understand how people get in those circumstances. 
May you give us a heart of compassion and love and patience. And may you be faithful in the lives of those people that we serve. May you be with the organizations that we support to meet those needs and to empower those people to make their lives better and to transform their lives through your leadership and guidance in their lives. And may we be able to be thankful for what we have and use it wisely. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.